Or in and out, above, about, below. Tis nothing but a magic shadow show. Played in a box whose candle is the sun. Round which we phantom figures come and go. And if the wine you drink, the lip you press, and in the nothing all things end in yes, then fancy while thou art, thou art but what thou shalt be, nothing thou shalt not be less. While the rose blows along the river brink, with old Kayam the ruby vintage drink, and when the angel with his darker draft draws up to thee, take that and do not shrink. Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days. Where destiny with men for pieces plays, hither and thither moves and mates and slays, and one by one back in the closet lays. The ball no question makes of A's or no's, but right or left as strikes the player goes. He that tossed thee down into the field, he knows about it all, he knows, he knows. The moving finger writes, and having writ, moves on, nor all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line. Nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. And that inverted bowl we call the sky, Where under crawling cooped we live and die. Lift not thy hands to it for help, For it rolls impotently on as thou or I. Earth's first clay they did the last man's need, and then of the last harvest sowed the seed. Yea, the first morning of creation wrote what the last dawn of reckoning shall read. I tell thee this when starting from the gold. Over the shoulders of the flaming fold of heaven, Parwin and Mushtari they flung in my predestined plot of dust and soul. The vine had struck a fiber which about, if clings my being, let the Sufi flout. Of my base metal may be filed a key That shall unlock the door he howls without And 
This I know, whether the one true light Kindle to love, or wrath consume me quite One glimpse of it within the tavern caught Better than in the temple lost outright O thou who didst with pitfall and with gin Beset the road I was to wander in. Thou wilt not with predestination round and mesh me and impute my fall to sin. O thou who man of baser earth did make, and who with Eden didst devise the snake. For all the sin wherewith the face of man is blackened, man's forgiveness give and take. Listen again one evening at the close of Ramzan, ere the better moon arose. In that old potter's shop I stood alone, with the clay population round in rows. And strange to tell, among the earthen lot, some could articulate while others not. And suddenly one more impatient cried, Who is the potter, pray, and who the pot? last class, which is actually the fourth of five classes. The introduction to this audio tape says it's the seventh of eight classes, but that's not true, just to ease the confusion. So we're doing 45 to 60 tonight, and then we'll finish 60 to 75 next week. Do we have any comments or questions before we begin? All right. I understand that in the next edition of this, Swamiji has done considerable adding to it. He edited and then he also made more editorial comments. So I just found that out. I just read that somewhere today. I didn't know that. He actually did it right after it was published, but this edition has lasted such a long time that now it's quite a long time later. So if when it comes out again, we may have to buy it again. <laughs> okay. And it'll be a little while. All right. And this uh, series, not all of them uh, are this way, but there's a lot of uh, quatrains this time that deal with karma and Satan, sort of two forms that kind of play in. And they're actually closely related concepts because what perpetuates our karma is this energy that pulls us away from the spirit. So that theme, I mean, the sections have not had necessarily had themes at all. But this one, as it happens, it does. So, starting with Quatrain 56, we'll just go through them as we have been and see how far we get. And this I know, whether the one true light kindled to love or wrath consume me quite, one glimpse of it within the tavern caught better than in the temple lost outright. Yes, that's an extremely good plan. <laughs> I was reading that. I was thinking, this seems really odd. Why am I starting here? Okay, we'll get there. We just skipped ahead. 
Okay, number 46 deals with the subject of Maya, which is really fun to see Maya appear in the middle of this. Fair, for in and out, above, about, below, tis nothing but a magic shadow show, played in a box whose candle is the sun, round which we phantom figures come and go. Nothing but a magic shadow show is a very famous line, isn't it? Um, and this is simply just talking about this, what we talk about so often in the context of self-realization and what Master talks about in his poem Samadhi is how this world that appears so real to us is really just a projection of light and that even though it in, about, above, below, meaning that it appears to have all these dimensions, when our consciousness becomes centered in its true center, which is inside our souls, we, we vanish the veils of light and shade, is how Master puts it in the poem Samadhi. When we go into consciousness, that consciousness vanished the veils of light and shade, lifted every vapor of sorrow, sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy, gone the dim sensory mirage, he calls it, the sensory mirage created that seems so real to us. So Omar Khayyam writes the same thing here. And he says in Divine Awareness, when we reach divine consciousness, we realize what a phantom this world is. Um, this concept of maya, however, is very seamless when we live in it. And we have to go into a higher level of awareness before we can see through it. It's very important um, to understand this simple principle that this world is not what it seems because all our sorrow and all our suffering and all our confusion comes very simply when we take this world too seriously. When we look at it and we think it, it really is the definition of ourselves. And so then we begin to suffer. I mean, all of us have had the experience of going to very good theater or very good movies or reading very good novels and just finding ourselves sort of drawn into it and just having these intense experiences of emotional ups and downs that can make us angry or afraid or tearful or even affect us for a long time. But there's always a part of us that realizes I'm just, I'm just watching a movie. Some of us are more susceptible to being affected by such things, but we always know in some part of ourselves that this is just a film I'm watching, this is just a play. And yet, how easily we lose track of that exact same fact when we're more personally in the center of it. So, that, so just even that phrase, a magic shadow show, it, it's very dynamic to use a, 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 an extreme opposite in order to extricate ourselves from all the different nuances of the karmic pattern. And that's what we'll talk about as we go through here. Um, in the commentary, there's a couple of phrases that are really wonderful. One of it is when he says, we can awake from this dream of life only by making it a reflection of truth. In other words, it's very tempting for the spiritual neophyte to simply dismiss it as a dream and then either refuse to put out any energy or, or try to justify all sorts of wrong, egoically motivated actions. I actually knew in my very early days on the spiritual path, the man who was a thief, and he justified it on the basis of the fact that life was a dream. He was a devotee, a student of Vedanta, and he thought, well, if it's all a dream anyway, I'll just manipulate it to my liking, which is the kind of reason why in lower ages they keep the higher truths from the average person 
because they'll twist them rather than understanding them. So what Master writes here is that the only way we can really escape from this dream is to use our will and the, the power of our consciousness to make our experience of this dream reflect the higher truth. In other words, that everything we do within this dream, we are not responding to the transitory changing waves, but we are always responding to the deeper reality. That means we must be fearless, we must be honorable, uh, we must not get drawn into um, the pleasures of the physical world insofar as they take us away from the experience of the inner self. We must live in this dream with the consciousness of God that's behind it. And nor is it enough merely to reject it. You can't just hate it. You have to love God through it. So there's a sort of certain stage that comes where you have a negative attitude, but true saints do not have a negative attitude. And that's a very important to remember. True saints are not cynical or, or callous toward this world or um, cavalier about it. They're full of enthusiasm because everywhere they look, they see the divine. To them, the dream reflects God's consciousness. And when they see the ugliness of it, it merely makes them compassionate or more deeply driven toward the spirit, but not into negative rejection. And then in this commentary, he also says um, that friendship is an example of the way we live in a higher reality on this planet. For friendship reminds us of our true companion, who is God. If dream we must, is it not better that our dreams reflect the purity of the dreamer's consciousness? In friendship, let us emulate the wise, whose friendship is offered from their center in truth to the truth center in all living beings. One list that Swamiji made once of, uh, that I read of priorities in this life, in human life, he put friendship either first or maybe even second. Um, but it was very high on the list. And it always sort of intrigued me because on one level you might think of friendship being an outer manifestation. But the point is that in order to live out the principles of true friendship, we must generate within ourselves many godlike qualities of detachment and unconditional love and genuine concern for another person's welfare and self-control and self-discipline and self-sacrifice, all the qualities that um, elevate us toward God consciousness. And friendship is one of the ways in which God teaches us and disciplines us. So it's just an important thought to keep in mind, lest in our pseudo-spirituality we disregard uh, even the common courtesies or the kindnesses or the basic loyalties of life. Because if you think about the guru and the guru's great disciples who help us, the one characteristic that you always think of is friendship, isn't it? Friendship in God is how Master described, uh, Swami described the relationship with Master. Friendship with God, he even said. But it was an unconditional loyalty to people and to their salvation is what Master offered. And so it behooves us to consider the extent to which we can emulate that. It's just something really interesting to contemplate because we tend to sort of sweep the whole thing away without sing singling out these more important divine expressions even in the human drama. Anyway, that struck me and I wanted to point it out. Number 47 says, And if the wine you drink, the lip you press, end in the nothing all things end in, yes, then fancy while thou art, thou art but what thou shalt be, nothing, thou shalt not be less. 
Isn't that just a wonderful play on words? Thou art, with, thou art, but what thou shalt be, nothing. Um, in this commentary, they talk a lot about the state of nirvana, which is the prelude to the state of superconscious bliss, in which everything of this world disappears, all sensory perceptions disappear. But it, they emphasize that, that once you have let go of everything and allowed yourself to become no thing, no material object anymore, no attachment, no involvement, no identification with anything of this world, then that allows you to experience all thingness, everything that we are, which is the infinite bliss. And he, he just plays with our minds and tells us that if that's where you're going, that's where you are. That you'll never be more and you'll never be less than what you are in eternity. These are just the waves on the ocean. The waves on the ocean is the image that appears over and over again. And it's really such an important one to think about. No matter how high a wave goes, no matter how low it goes, it never affects the quantity of water in the ocean. It's just something that happens, emanates from its deep source and then fades away. And so all the waves on the ocean are all the things that we think we're experiencing. Our personal lives, our little dramas, our identity, all our desires, all our disappointments. They're just waves on this ocean. And sooner or later they'll all just be absorbed into the ocean. And when they're absorbed into the ocean, you see, it's as if they never were. It's not like they have this eternal, everlasting reality. It's a very important thing when we feel ourselves caught and overwhelmed by the things of this world. Just say to yourself, just a wave on the ocean. And, and retreat with all your willpower into the power of the ocean. And then just let those moments of temptation or those moments of despair or moods or whatever they are, just let them pass. They're just waves on the ocean. Later on, I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about that. But... Uh, He's emphasizing the eternal now. You know, there's many people who are teaching nowadays with a less devotional attitude toward God who just emphasize, just be in the now. Even the book that started the whole revolution so long ago, Be Here Now, it really is a very simple statement, isn't it? We got these Jewish, these haiku, Jewish haiku that came in the over the email. Many of you saw them. I can only remember a few. One was... A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single oi. <laughs> In your past life, you didn't call, you didn't write, you didn't visit, so whose fault was that? <laughs> but the other one that was related to this was it says, be here now, be somewhere else later. Why is that so hard? <laughs> but true, be here now, why is that so hard? Because we have this illusion that our happiness depends on our anxiety about the future, doesn't it? And that we can't just put down the past and let it be. We're constantly dividing our attention between what was and what's coming. So much so that we, we miss the moment. But you'll never be anything different than you actually are. God is as present with you as he ever will be. And so it, these are very gyanic ways of going at things, to just use these powerful ideas and the powerful will of the mind to pierce through the veils of delusion. But all of us, in one way or another, can benefit from all the forms of yoga. And one of the things this Rubaiyat does to us, it gives us these... These, these ideas, these very discriminating ideas in this beautiful poetic form, the magic shadow show, 
when you're just sitting there on the edge of despair or exaggerated elation over something that has happened, just say to yourself, it's just a magic shadow show. It's just a candle-lit room and these are just light and shade playing together. Yes, I can enjoy it, but let me enjoy it only for what it is. And when I think that, oh, I've lost something that I so desperately wanted, or I've gained something that I so desperately wanted, think, oh, it all ends in nothing. All the karmic pattern, everything, every gain, every loss, it all balances out. Swami says to zero. Isn't that just marvelous to contemplate? Millions of incarnations just come out to zero. When uh, a master was speaking to Swamiji and told him that he would realize God in this lifetime, although he said you will have to work hard and death will be the final sacrifice, meaning that it wouldn't come to him until his death. Certainly that seems what it means. But he also, Master also said to Swami, everything is in balance. It's a very interesting statement. Everything is balanced now. And so that means all the suffering, all the good, it's all balanced out and now you're, you're even. You can go forward from here. We should, we should rejoice when dark things happen to us because we're balancing the scales. It's inevitable. It's going to happen inevitably. So thank heaven it's happening now. Otherwise it would just happen later. Just one more out of the way. We'll talk a little more as we get more into the karma section. Number 48 says... While the rose blows along the river brink, with old Kayam the ruby vintage drink, and when the angel with the darker drought draws up to thee, take that and do not shrink. We think that we wouldn't be afraid, don't we? I remember when very early on when I was first meditating, I had some very small experience and I was asking Swami about the experience and he said, Oh, Asha dear, don't be afraid. And I said, I'm not afraid. <laughs> I heard my little voice. I thought, boy, who do you think you're kidding? Of course I was afraid. I was just terribly afraid of the unfamiliar, of the sense of more power than I could control coming into me. The sense of taking me off into realms I didn't know. Just the sheer threat to my little systems. You know, all my little systems, what would become of them? I know this one woman, bless her heart, who came to Ananda and then went. Um, hither, thither, thither, hither. Um, Swamiji, uh, where was I reading this today? Oh, I, I read something recently where Master said certain people would come to him and if he felt a call from Divine Mother that they might be open, he would give them energy. And some of them would receive it and others of them uh, would not. They would just go away. And then it would have to wait until the cycle came around again. And I, when I read that, I thought of this particular woman. She came to Ananda and Swamiji gave her a great deal of energy. And, uh, but she came to one of us and complained that she really didn't like to spend too much time with Swami because when she did, she had a difficult time remembering her problems. <laughs> And she felt that if she couldn't keep them uppermost in her mind, how would she ever solve them? Isn't that, just, isn't that just chilling to the bone? But even though we think that's chilling, sometimes the challenge to just be happy is much greater than we're able to meet. We're, we're comfortable with our little systems. We don't like to have something come. So even though here the actual meaning is this, is uh, you go and you... the, the the rose of divine consciousness and the vintage of divine awareness and then the angel comes and offers us the darker drop is a, 
is the real bliss of, of super-consciousness. But really, God all the time is inviting us to go deeper than we've gone. And he says, drink it, don't shrink. If more is being asked of you, don't shrink from it. Don't think, oh, I can't do that. If we find, um, you know, we, we like to keep our lives on the level that we ourselves can easily control. We're very, very addicted to the familiar. And, and sometimes we get all our little systems just in place and we think we're being so good because we have all our little systems. Master said it's a very good idea to change your habits on a regular basis and to do things that you would not normally do and to let go of routines that you feel you have to follow and to you know, eat different foods or don't eat foods you think to have just in any way you can just to prove to yourself that you're free. You know, sometimes it's not good to devote too much energy to get your little physical world and your little physical scene too much in order. On one hand, it's good because we can just relax and forget it. On the other hand, we always have to ask ourselves, does it, do I direct it or does it direct me? And as long as we can walk away from it without a moment's thought, then no harm. But if we ever feel, find ourselves feeling anxious because we can't quite do things the way we usually do them, think about this. The angel comes and offers us the darker drought. Do we drink it up or do we shrink? Oh no, don't change me. We want everything to be different, but we don't want to change. <laughs> Strange paradox of the human mind. It's good to just imagine yourself. Imagine yourself living without anything that you have now. Uh, you know, I used to live when I was much younger at Ananda village. We had nothing, of course, and we lived in these little trailers with no running water. And we finally built a shower house in our part of Ananda, but for a long time we'd have to walk across the hill to take a shower. Or I just took bucket baths in my trailer for years. I got so that I just liked it as well as anything. Just boil water and stand in this little tub and just, you know, take a shower. I just did it for years and it was just fine. Water I carried in. Um, and I just actually thought I would always live that way because I was a renunciate and that was my expectation. In fact, I had the very happy thought, which still is attractive to me, that the older I got, the less I would have. You know, most of the time we think that as we get older, we'll gradually accumulate, don't you? Don't we? And our culture tells us you've got to get your house, you've got to have your retirement home, you have to have your travel plans, you have to have your this, you have to have your that. And so we just sort of like, the closer we get to having to renounce it all, the more we've stocked up our little pile around us. Whereas in truth, what we want to be is the older we get, the more mature on the spiritual path, the less we need anything at all. The more free we are just to live by the grace of God. So it's a fun idea. I was sitting in my house recently, just imagining it all gone. Just like, really, like, is there anything here that I need? And it's, it's really fun to just get it down to, we had a forest fire at Ananda in 1976, and something peculiar happened, which is because the fire happened in the middle of the day, and we had just a little bit of warning of where the fire was going. Total strangers had to go, in, not total strangers, but people had to go into other people's houses and had maybe 10 minutes to take out everything they thought would be of value because the people who lived there were far away and it was just very complicated. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a peculiar thing. When you're standing, just imagine walking into somebody else's home and trying to think, what would they want me to save out of this house? So we, we started putting little lists in our house because we had fires a lot. We put little lists on the wall of what to take first, and that lasted for a while. It was very interesting to just sit in your place and think, well, what to take first? 
and what's really, really valuable. And I've had, I've only had one Kriya Mala in my whole life. I've managed not to lose it, and it was the first one I got, and it's the only one I've ever had. And when I hold that, I think this is the most valuable thing I own. It, it doesn't have much uh, intrinsic value, maybe a hundred dollars. But just somehow it's just become representative of my spiritual life. And I have some relics of Swami, and, you know, and I have practical things like my computer. But it's really interesting to just stand back and think, what do I really have to have? And then just every night, or as often as possible, really try to let the rest of it go. Use it if, if it's useful to your life. Simple living is not... A master didn't recommend uh, poverty. He recommended simple living. And simple living is having what you can use and using it. You know, and for that, for some people, that's more complicated. You know, Swami has a recording studio and video equipment and, um, you know, lots of different things. But he uses all of that. That's all for the simplicity of his life. He needs those things. And you may have a house of a certain size or of certain quality because you use it. But ask yourself, you know, what do I really use of what I have? And, and reduce ourselves down to that, or at least in our minds, become detached from everything else. One very rich man was written up in the newspaper because he was so peculiar, because he owned so little. And his simple answer was, how many pairs of shoes can one man wear, one at a time? I only have two feet. <laughs> but we have. I mean, I have more than two pairs of shoes. But I use them. <laughs> okay. And then another one about karma here. I love this. Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days where destiny with man for pieces plays. Hither and thither moves and mates and slays and one by one back in the closet lays. I think it's so much fun to think of yourself, isn't it? Just as living on this checkerboard being moved around by God. And we have this sort of sense of great adventure that we're on. But always, whenever you're standing on a white square, you're going to be surrounded by black ones. You can move kitty corner, perhaps, into another white one. But still, you know, all of your direct moves are going to be black. And when you're standing on a black square, right next to it is going to be a white square. And there's nowhere that you can move in this entire world where it's going to turn all white unless you raise above it or within it or beyond it, however you phrase it. But again, it's always going to be up and down. And the rules of this game are the laws of karma. And no one escapes from it. And God just laughs at us when we think we finally got our little world in order. But this is the way it goes. And it's always alternating. That's why he puts it like that. So now we begin this whole section. There's about five of these in a row that are all about uh, karma and free will. Number 50 says, The ball no question makes of eyes or nose, but right or left as strikes the player goes. And he that tossed thee down into the field, he knows about it all. He knows. He knows. It's interesting when I read this one because I used to, when I was younger, when I was in college, um, even before I came on the spiritual path, I used to describe myself as the puck in the ice hockey game of life. Because I, I, I felt my life to be exactly as this quatrain describes, which is that somehow I had gotten into this enormously active interchange of energy in which many, many things happened to me. I wasn't bored, but I never had any concept of what the rules of the game were 
where we were going, which end was the scoring end, you know, where the next uh, movement would come from. And when I got on the spiritual path, I described it as suddenly having gotten not only up into the bleachers, but actually all the way up into the press box, where I could now look down. And even if I was still sort of somewhat powerlessly caught as the puck being, being battered back and forth, at least I could begin to watch the pattern. And beginning to watch the pattern was the beginning of being able to have freedom in it. So once again, when we feel ourselves to be um, the helpless plaything of life, realize with a great sense of relaxation, we are. That's as simple as that. You know, in another quatrain it says, make a game of that which makes a game of thee. Which is that we are just being moved about. And Master writes over and over and over again in these sections about karma that we have this such a strong sense that it's being done to us because we no longer can clearly grasp the role we played in creating our own destiny. Now this is extraordinarily important because the, be- the beginning of freedom from the law of karma is to take responsibility and stop rebelling. You know, we, we spend so much of our energy, just subconsciously and consciously, so much of our energy in some kind of a heels dug in resistance to whatever's happening to us, or some vague sense that somehow the experiences of our lives are externally caused and that those external circumstances are somehow separate from us and that we don't really bear responsibility for it. The law of karma is so utterly demanding and unrelenting and, and, and you are completely trapped. You have absolutely no outs in the law of karma. And so the mind casts about in all directions to find exceptions to the rule. And by that I mean, and Master says it over and over and over and over again in these quatrains, everything that happens to you happens to you because you yourself made a decision, took an action, did something that set the energy in motion that you are now reaping. No exceptions. Many years I remember... Many years ago, I remember when Swamiji was introducing what he called the Superconscious Living Course. This was about 1978 or 79 in San Francisco. It was a great big event. It was a, it's a wonderful sort of organization, organizational presentation of these teachings. We keep trying to teach the Superconscious Living System here, and we can never seem to launch it. Nobody ever kind of grasps what it is. Um, some people think it's a lost cause, but we want to persevere and see if we can just get somebody to see it for what it is. But Swami was introducing it, and it's a great big program that we'd worked a long time to put on. We had some, like almost 500 people in the Palace of Fine Arts up in San Francisco. It was a really big event in 1979, so it was a big, big thing for them. And Swamiji was talking about the law of karma. And he, he was just talking about how the law of karma just is what it is. Nothing happens on this planet that isn't appropriate, even though you might not think so. It's all absolutely appropriate and people get exactly what is right for them. And then he said, even the Jews in the Holocaust got what they deserved. The whole room went <gasps> like that. And you could just feel people. And then there was a kind of a <laughs> kind of noisy reaction. You know, people just couldn't accept it. And Swami just held it and he just went forward. And then he, he changed it. He, he didn't relent. And and he shifted it slightly. He said, you must also understand that deserve is not necessarily a punishment. You also get what you deserve when you get a great reward. Isn't that so? 
And he went on to talk about how bad circumstances in life are not necessarily a sign of, of God's lack of favor, but may often be the reward, your opportunity to rise to new heights. And he talked about how many saints came out of those very difficult conditions. I even read about a rabbi who called that time the shining hour of the Jewish people because he said everything material was taken away from us and we had the opportunity to prove our simple truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and the Lord is always with us in all circumstances. Very not commonly accepted positive thought. But think how much energy in our culture is. People trying to make somebody else pay. You know, the black people want to be paid for slavery. The Japanese want to be paid for being interned. The Jews want to be paid for having their belongings taken from them. And, I mean, on one level, yes. And on another level, like, why? You know, for one thing, it didn't even happen to most of us. But even if it did, whatever happened to us was God's will. Whatever happened to us was the exact balancing reality to whatever energies we had put out in the past and therefore with our just desserts. Bearing in mind also that even negative things are not necessarily a sign of punishment, but also are a sign that we have reached the level in which we are going to be allowed to face a huge test to see if we have the strength to pass it. And Master also talks about to, to, what, to what extent we are simply ruled by the conditioning of the past. That which we call ourselves, he calls us as just habits that we don't even know. And this is again where Master says, don't repeat the same things too many times. Comb your hair differently. <laughs> Sleep on the other side of the bed. Just even little things. Just to say, I am free. And always be open to the very real thought that what I'm thinking is just a random pattern and doesn't have to be the way I am. Forever. This Quatrain 50 also has this marvelous editorial comment about free will. And Swamiji says a few things in there that are just really worth contemplating. He says, people tend to consider the definition of free will, as he puts it, to be able to act in an unpredictable manner, which is for the ego to be able to do anything it wants without reference to the world in which it lives. And he says, on that level, no, we have no free will at all, because everything is interconnected. It's not possible to separate one little drop out of the ocean and say this drop is completely free of the ocean and will act without inf being influenced by the ocean or act in, not in concert with the ocean. He says that, that, that we tend to ask this question of free will as it's the wrong question. He says the question of free will is whether we not have the freedom to choose those influences which will produce our greater happiness or whether we are so bound by our habits that we continually choose those things that cause us misery. And that's the only freedom worth having. We can't really have the freedom to act outside of the interrelationship of ourselves to this universe. We can't step out of our own past and, or step out of our inevitable future. But within the, the, the moving train, what we have control over is which way we orient ourselves. Do we orient ourselves toward a constant awareness of God? Or do we orient ourselves to drink ever more deeply of the poison uh, oh, poison potion of, of depending on this changing world for our happiness. Where does our happiness come from? This is the only freedom that we really have. You know, everyone in the world loses sooner or later everything that we want. I mean, some of you have already experienced death of, of loved ones or loss of power or position or just many different things that this world does for us. My mother died a couple of years ago and she'd been sick for a really long time. And uh, I wasn't 
my life was not that dependent upon hers. And yet still, I'm astonished uh, by the poignancy sometimes when I reflect upon her life. And I just think, oh, what a pot of poison this world is. <laughs> you know, even though we know philosophically that souls go on and that we meet for a while, then we go away, and that everybody just learns the lessons that they're going to learn. Still, we're so tender-hearted, and we get caught in the movie. And, the, and free will is the capacity to remain in bliss. That's the only free will that we really need. We don't need the free will to uh, act in any particular way. Well, the free will we have to cultivate is the free will to be attuned to the divine. And that's what we need to work on, and that's always available to us. That's what the, the beauty of all this teaching is, is that no one can ever take it away from you. You can be beaten and imprisoned and starved and neglected and alone, everything. But you're never alone if you realize that you're nothing anyway and that you're only one with God. I remember Nitai. I've shared this with you, but it's such a sweet story. There's been a lot of discussion at Ananda about, you know, what will we all do when we all get old at the same time? There's such a large group of people who are essentially the same age and should we have retirement plans and should we have this and that and it's all a moot discussion because there's absolutely no money to put toward those things anyway but nonetheless every so often people talk about it and we put people put token amounts there and there was one discussion in which there was a sort of group of people who were demanding that Ananda make provisions for their future and Nitaik sort of cut through the discussion in a way that was very moving which is, he said, quite simply, he said, I didn't, this is not an agreement between me and any organization. He said, even Ananda, devoted as I am to it, he said, I'm not serving in order that someone will take care of me. He said, this is an agreement between myself and God. He said, I've given my life to God, and God will take care of me in whatever way he chooses. And he said, if at the end of my life I find myself with nothing, and he said, and I die of cancer alone under a bridge, is how he put it. Let's get dramatic about it. He said, I won't feel betrayed by Ananda or by God. He said, that's not why I'm doing it. Now, these are very challenging ideas to get into our minds. But it's an important, important to realize if we're really going to trust in the infinite, and if we're really going to believe in karma, and if we're really going to give ourselves wholeheartedly, we have to have at least some courage in the experiment. We have to live in an appropriate level and can't be presumptuous and out of ego try to live at a level of renunciation that we don't actually have the experience to sustain. I mean, There's a very subtle distinction here. But we should definitely at all times strive to, to, to be genuine in the highest level of renunciation that we can reach, whatever that might be. And we need to be pushing the edge of that at all times. Otherwise, what will happen? We will just die stuck where we are. A friend of mine who's a little older than I am was speaking to me recently about some disappointing experiences that the person was having about certain people didn't seem to be responding appropriately and the person was then feeling not appreciated. And Of course, they're older than I am. That doesn't mean they have one foot in the grave, but they're closer to the grave in theory than I am. And my only response was, do you want to die with these attitudes? You know, you're relatively speaking close to the end of your life. Do you want to just start over in a new incarnation with all of this, oh, people don't treat me right stuff? It's just such a dreary, horrifying prospect. You know, be glad that you're having a sense of being mistreated now. 
because that tells you that you haven't overcome this yet. You know, we're never too old to be ignorant. It's very impressive. And so when these things come to us, ask yourself, bad enough I should be experiencing this now. Do I want to start all over and run a whole incarnation? Do I want to go through childhood and adolescence with these same lessons? You know, it's not easy, but let's put out the courage. The next one is really clear on that one. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. Nor all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. I was, uh, I wrote here that we really have to think before we act, don't we? Because once the karma is set in place, it doesn't matter how much we plead and cry, no matter how wise we get in our theology, no matter how pious we become, the energy set in motion. You know, is it easier to stop the wrong energy now, or is it easier to live through the consequences of it? You know, sometimes you have to ask yourself that question. When, when, when we're faced with temptation to be unkind, to be inattentive to our spiritual practices, to have wrong attitudes, to do hurtful things to others, just ask yourself, do I want to experience the consequences of this? Is the pleasure of, at this time going to be worth it for all that's going to come back to me later? The moving finger writes, and once it's writ, you can't undo it again. How many of us have sat and thought, oh, if only? I remember Richard uh, Sabina Wormbrand. Wormbrand uh, Richard Wormbrand is a great Christian saint. I think he's still alive. He was imprisoned for many years uh, by the communists in Romania for being a Christian. His wife was also imprisoned. And in the women's prison, she found herself, um, some of her companions in jail were society women, you know, wealthy women who'd only lived lives of superficial pleasure. She said, really, they were so much more unhappy than anyone else because they had just nothing in their heads. And she said also alone, I think it was he or she said that hell is sitting alone in the dark uh, with all your regrets. It's a very interesting way to think about it, isn't it? With all the things you wished you had done differently, the moving finger writes. And no matter how much we plead and cry, it's still there. We've set it in motion. And so we should just remember, just before I act, do I really want to live through the consequences of this? And sometimes it can be very sobering <laughs> and keep us on the straight and narrow. It's all just a game. All of these verses are written to inspire us to write action. And right action is dharma, and dharma is that which expands our consciousness and brings us to self-realization. A magic shadow show, the moving finger writes. These are things worth remembering, aren't they? Because there's a power in those phrases that goes deep into our consciousness. The less ego we have in everything we do, however, the less karma we have. Master writes that, a specific karma can be canceled only in two ways, by an equivalent opposite force or by the elimination of ego as the magnetic center. And that's how ultimately, you see, we overcome all our karma. It's not that you actually live everything out. It's that what attracts the karma to you is the, the magnetism of the ego that says, I did it, this is me. If you dissolve that sense of I, then when the energy returns, there's no I to attract it to you. Do you understand? That's how Kriya works. That's how 
the grace of God works. That's how going into self-realization gets us out of this. So the more we concentrate in a, in a general sense on, on eliminating our sense of identity, personal identity with the life we're living, and the more we just identify ourselves as an expression of the infinite moving with his power through life, that, that the more our consciousness moves there, the more we dissolve that power of ego that attracts that karma to us. That's why it says elsewhere in here that karma that's in motion for a devotee often uh, strikes with much less force than it was launched. As he said, like if you were destined to lose an arm, you might just scratch your arm instead. Because there's the, the egoic force to draw that energy to a focus in you has been dissipated to such an extent that only some of it attaches. It's very interesting, isn't it? And that's what we do when we do kriyas, that we transfer our, our, our sense of self from the mandala where the ego is to the spiritual eye where Christ consciousness lives. And so we become not the ego anymore, but the divine in harmony with the infinite. And then that karma looks for the ego and it can't find it. And it dissipates into the divine. So that... Um, uh, the devotee, the law of karma doesn't apply in the same way to devotees. That's what Master said. After all this about karma that's in here, Master said the law of karma does not apply to devotees in the same way because they have the grace of the guru to protect them. They have the power of their spiritual practices to diminish the hold of the ego. And those two forces accelerate. That's how it works. That's why one kriya can be equivalent to 12 years of normal living because you're, you're dissolving the ego in the way that life experience would do. You're doing it more quickly, and so the karma's going away. Very promising, isn't it? I'll read one more, and then we'll take a break. Number 52. And that inverted bowl we call the sky, where under crawling cooped we live and die. Lift not thy hands to it for help, for it rolls impotently on as thou or I. This is actually a reference, a direct reference to astrology. Um, Omar Khayyam himself was an astrologer, and the science of astrology was a, a very big art at the time that he lived. It's very important to realize that the science of astrology and the science of yoga were both created in India at the same time. And the science of, atro- of astrology, correctly practiced, really is a science. But what, what your horoscope is, is your horoscope is an external expression of the karma in your spine. And it's, it's the karma in your spine that creates the horoscope. It's not the stars that create the karma. And so even though you can, you can look to your horoscope to help you understand the subtle influences that are going on inside of you, the PowerPoint is not external but internal. And therefore, by spiritual practices, you can change the karma and therefore gain mastery over the stars. They do not have any inherent power to affect you. It's very important, even the little bit or the great deal that those of you or those of us who pay attention to astrological things all it is is reading the book of your inner self. It is not creating your inner self. And it's very inappropriate to allow the thought of your astrological condition to actually dominate the thought of what you yourself are going to be able to make happen. It merely describes for you the conditions that you're facing in order to make it happen, favorable, unfavorable, oriented this way or oriented that way. But it is not creating your destiny you created the horoscope and you were always in charge. And that's why it says, don't look to the stars for help. You can't pray to the stars to make it work for you. You can't appeal to them. 
they'll just tell you what you're, what's going on and then you make of it what you will. You know, Master said in his own uh, life, sometimes he would seek out times when the astrology was particularly unfavorable and then he would just use his willpower to make things happen anyway. And sometimes it would take more willpower, but he did it to prove that he was always stronger than any external reality. And when his horoscope said that he would be married three times, he took the horoscope and he burned it to ashes. And three times they did try to marry him, and three times he absolutely refused to fall in with their plans because it was merely the inclination of his horoscope. His destiny was in his own hands. And it's just, it's very important at all times to just reiterate that to yourself over and over and over again. Maybe the astrology can help explain you to yourself when you feel confused, but it does not create your reality. You create your horoscope. You create your reality. Nothing external does it. Okay, let's take a break. Ten minutes. All right, Brenda. Do we believe in Nirvana? Swamiji has commented about it in several places. He's commented that that the Buddhists talk a lot about Nirvana as the annihilation of everything. Swami's written, I can't remember where it is, but he wrote about it at great length and mentioned that uh, no wonder people decide to stay around and help the planet because who would want it? And he says that it's not really what Buddha taught because Buddha taught full self-realization that nirvana is the stage before the state of bliss. That's, I mean, I'm quoting, but this is how they describe it. When all experience, this whole world disappears, all sensory awareness disappears, uh, and I mean, that's a, a state, but that's not the end point. The point after that is bliss because that kind of annihilation in itself is, is a negative state. And, and, and that's why they talk about you. You have to reach there, but then you have to have the courage to go on from there into something else. I wish, can anyone remember where Swami talks about that? The Book of Superconsciousness, that's where he talks about it. He talks, yeah, that's right, he talks a lot. He's a long discussion about nirvana and what the Buddha really taught and what a, what a false, what a confusing teaching it is to talk about nirvana as the end point. Of course, most of the people talking about it are not experiencing it, so it's really just words anyway, and experience takes over, no matter what you think. But even to have a clear concept of what you're trying to achieve helps, because if you realize that bliss is the goal, not nothingness, bliss is, is a much more dynamic uh, reality to attune yourself to than mere nothingness. You can see if you're attuning yourself to being nothing, you don't always know what to do, and it can make you very dry. It can also make you very unfeeling. And it can also make you very reluctant to go there. <laughs> Whereas if you know that your goal is bliss, why would you hold back from it? But Swamiji actually talks about, I think in Superconsciousness, he talks about in that moment of nothingness, as he put it, there's a moment of intense loneliness when you realize that you are the only thing that is. But then you realize the bliss on the other side of it. It's very poignant the way he wrote it. Yeah. Rick, did you uh, want to? Well, just the uh, idea of the Bodhisattva. Is the one? Uh, yeah, compassion is that everyone else will be saved before they are. Right, Swami, Swami jokes about that. It's no wonder you choose to be a Bodhisattva because it's not that attractive to just go into nothing. But he's teasing when he says that. Any other comments? Was there someone over here? 
Yes, but I know, you know, the first time nirvana appeared in our, in our literature, so to speak, I was surprised too because it seemed like it was a crossing of wires. Not that, of course, it is. I mean, how narrow-minded and silly can you be? But it isn't what we talk about normally. But it does come up in here in several places because Omar Khayyam talks a lot about nothing. And that's, I guess that's the right word for, for that state of nothing. Okay. Now we're reading number 53. With earth's first clay they did the last man's need and then of the last harvest sowed the seed. Yea, the first morning of creation wrote what the last dawn of reckoning shall read. Isn't that beautiful poetry? It's a little bit hard to sort of grasp. The last harvest sowed the seed. This is, again, still about karma, and that as soon as we were created, desires were also planted within us. And as, as they say in several places, uh, karma is self-replicating. And this is this line, and then the last harvest sowed the seed. All the seeds, uh, all that happened in the last life becomes the seeds of the next life. This is a reference to reincarnation and the laws of karma. This is just what I was saying earlier. You want to die with this attitude? You, you die with this sense, all these unlearned lessons that we have refused to face and deal with in this incarnation. All that happens to us is we get to start over except we don't necessarily remember why we feel that way, and we have to go through that whole process of learning how to eat, and how to find our mouth with a spoon, and walk, and talk, and all those other things, and, and just even to just get a grasp on what we're doing, and all that we do, finally, when we've got our body organized, is bingo, we're right where we stopped. Just exactly right where we stopped. Of the, of the last harvest sows the seeds of the next life. That's why even, you know, there's no, never a point in which it's too late, you know, to, to apply our consciousness with great energy um, because we, we always go on. That's why even Master says things that are very subtle to sort of grasp. He says, you know, even if you're dying, um, you should keep trying to get well. He said, keep always affirm good health, even if you die trying. That's how he phrased it. I love that. And, it's, and of course, you can't, be, uh, you can't just be foolish in that thought. I'm suddenly, the, John, we just killed the sound. We can't be foolish in the thought, um, impractical in the thought, you know, uh, acting as if what is happening isn't happening. I don't think the sound is right yet. Um, let's see, where was I? Oh, we can't be foolish in the sense of we, we can't be impractical or airheaded. But, but it's even like if you're, even as your body is dying, I know when uh, Linda Gerber was passing, and you know, we just had the first anniversary of her dying of cancer, and it was always sort of tricky because she was clearly dying. You know, she, her body wasn't going to recover. But, so it became not so much a question of affirming that that particular body would get up and walk again, as affirming very strongly that she was fine and that there was nothing wrong with her. And, and it was the process of disidentifying with the body that was uh, disintegrating and identifying more and more with the unchanging part of herself. So there was always this very strong affirmation of health and well-being and vitality because you don't want to identify with a dying body to such an extent, Master put it, that when you're born, you, you have a concept that your body is weak. You see, if you, if you die with the thought, oh, my poor body, it's so racked, it's so ruined, you'll be born again with the concept of, oh, my poor body, it's so racked, it's so ruined. 
Of course, it can fall away, but you don't want that to be you. You want to say, I'm well. I think I told you the story of uh, Sherry Bernadette told me of, uh, she's a, a, a dental surgeon in, uh, or she, she's a specialist dentist in Nevada City, and Swami needed a certain kind of dental work that she herself couldn't do, but she made an arrangement. She got a friend of hers to do him a favor and slip him into his busy schedule and do some special dental work. So she, Sherry escorted Swami there because the man was doing her a favor. Also because Swami has trouble writing. His hand shakes sometimes. So often when there's forms to fill out or something, someone will help him. So this dentist doing this complicated procedure had a very long health form to fill out. He wanted to know all about his patient. The first question is, what is, Sherry didn't know Swamiji very well. What is your overall, overall state of health? Swami said, excellent, just excellent. <laughs> then Sherry started asking him specific questions. Hip replacement, hearing loss, um, heart operation, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, just it went on and on and on and on and on and on. But still, when you asked him what his health was, excellent, he said. Oh, I mean, his body may have those conditions, but his health, it's excellent. And he, it wasn't a, a, even an affirmation. It was just his sense of himself. His health is excellent. Now, that, you know, those are very important realities because of the last harvest is the seed sown. That's where it comes. And so we, we, we have to be very, very careful how, how we define ourselves. You may accommodate certain realities, but that's quite different than defining yourself by those realities. Last uh, Sunday, was it just this past? Yes, it was just two days ago when I was talking about learning to flip my own self-concept from a person who was so sensitive that everything overwhelmed me to a, simply to a person who isn't. That, I mean, the, the same qualities um, still exist within me. You know, whatever, however you would define them. I'm, I'm constituted in such a way that I have a, an awareness of many things that go on around me, not always to my benefit, it's just a fact. You know, I, I sort of see and feel what people are doing in anywhere in my space. But I just have stopped defining that as some quality that makes me fay and just accepted it as part of who I am, but why should that make me weak? You know, many things that there are about us, we just don't have to, we don't have to use them to make us weak. We can take whatever it is and use it to build strength because, the, because whatever we are, that's what we're just going to be more of it. That's the karma that we're setting in motion. So if you've been unfortunate enough to have a body that doesn't function as well as other bodies, okay, so it doesn't function as well as other bodies, but don't ever define yourself by that weakness and don't ever dwell on the thought of that weakness and don't ever see your life in those terms because all you'll do is just keep on doing it. You know, Just separate yourself. At least break the ego involvement with it. If you can't actually overcome the conditions with willpower, at least break the ego involvement with it. Do you understand? If you're prone to be unsuccessful, if you have you know, bad money karma or bad relationships karma or whatever it might be, but if, if it has to happen and you can't turn it with your willpower, at least distance your ego yourself from it. Do you understand what I mean? In a healthy manner, in a positive manner. It's just a wave, but I am the ocean. Yes, it's true that my, my, you know, in my part of the ocean these things are happening, but I am the ocean. These are just waves. It's when Swamiji was, one of his periods when he was, just could barely walk. He was so weak. How are you, sir? Compared to eternity, I feel fine. You know, that's an honest way of saying it. 
That's not saying that the body was doing so well, but compared to eternity, I feel fine. What difference does it make? I am well. Otherwise, that's the seed you want to have planted. That's why Master was so distressed when Swami once visited one of the devotees in the hospital and that man kept saying, oh, I've done so many wrong things in my life. And when Swami told Master, Master was so sad. He said, I I wish he wasn't dying with that thought in his mind. Now, we have to watch that because if your mind is inclined to think, oh, poor me, oh, I've done so many wrong things, oh, I'm a failure in so many ways, you're not going to get better, friends, you're going to get worse. You know, I, I, an observation that one of my friends made about, um, you know, uh, age-related senility is that you just go crazy in whichever direction you were going anyway, right? I mean, sometimes what happens is a complete shift, but not usually. I mean, my experience is very little, and my friend has only a little bit too, but the few examples we know are very interesting that you just keep going where you were and your brain freezes wherever you left it. Just like your mommy said to you, if you make that face too often, your brain's pain is gonna, face is going to freeze. If you have that thought too often, your brain's going to freeze. And it will. So how do you want to be? If you're don't, not enjoying it now, friend, you're going to enjoy it even less next time around, believe me. Just, and it's a fight, but fight it. Even, even a little effort. Even a little practice of this inward religion will free you from dire fears and colossal sufferings because even a little bit of effort is met by a descending force of grace. You know, Satan pulls us one way, but God pulls us the other. Okay. Fifty-four. Is this where I started or was it fifty-six? Where I started on fifty-six. I'll tell you this when start. Oh, I'm going to skip this one because this is just all about Mushtari and Parwin and the flaming fold. This is about astrology. We can just let that one pass. The vine had struck a fiber which about if clings my being. Let the Sufi flout of my base metal may be filed a key that shall unlock the door. He howls without. Oh gosh, Master uh, Swami says in here that uh, Sir Edwin Arnold. Edward Fitzgerald used the um, word Sufi thinking it meant a a theological intellectual and he says in later editions he didn't use the word Sufi because it's it's misused but that's what he meant he meant a dogmatist not a mystic in fact Sufi was the mystical aspect of it so that doesn't quite make sense but the subsequent translations have a better word than that and all it says in here is that let other people argue and think what they will. Um, he who knows the divine truth knows it. And then there's just this wonderful thought of my base metal may be filed a key. That's a very nice phrase, isn't it? It's a, a very important thing to realize that your spiritual nature is formed out of what you are. You don't really become something else. You don't really get to sort of abandon everything. You don't get to just jettison this and take on another character. You have to just start with a solid ground of acceptance of whatever your reality is, and you have to build from that. When we were working with um, God alone in the story of Sister Gyanamata, we talked about that, about just find the point of understanding of the spiritual path that you actually, with your whole heart, really know is true. Whatever point that is, you know. Don't just lay ideas on top of yourself and think you have to accept them just because other people accept them. You need to really know whatever it is 
You know, maybe all that you know is that Yogananda is your guru and you have no concept of anything beyond that. Maybe you just know that God exists. Maybe you know that some actions of my own affect my destiny. But whatever your actual real standing point is, build on that. Otherwise, your foundation is always insecure. A friend of ours at Ananda Village built a house on the steep hill below Swami, Swami's house. And um, he, he built the foundation very weak. And he lived in it for a long time. And he always kept thinking, I've got to go and work with that foundation and fix it and make it stronger. And he never did. And one day the house just slid right off the hill. Right? And, he, and he, he, fortunately he wasn't in it at the time. But when it slid right off the hill, he just felt it like it was a, an image for his whole life. And it really was because his whole spiritual life was based on, a, on a, a, an embracing of some picture of what he thought it was supposed to be and a rejection of, of his own you know, natural, true level on the spiritual path. Sometimes we just have to say, look, this is just who I am. This is the best I can do. But you'll be a much better saint. If you, I mean, it's the only way you can be a saint because if you try to skip these, you know, these uh, true levels of development, uh, does that make sense to you? Because it's just a vitally important point. I talk about it when I'm trying to encourage people to, to, to do affirmations. I always say, you have to do an affirmation that you actually believe. Because if you're doing an affirmation that's more than you can believe, even as you say it, your subconscious mind will reject it. The example I offered was this woman who came to me once who had, had intense environmental sensitivities. And she had been working as a lab technician and had to leave her job because she was allergic to so much that was in the lab. She thought she was better and she was going to go back to work and she came to me and she was extremely anxious about going back to work. So she had this affirmation she wanted to say, I am well, I am strong, I am, I am, I am you know, nothing bothers me in this lab. I am perfectly fine, nothing bothers me in this lab. And she said it to me and I said, but you don't believe that. She said, no, I don't. You know, I mean, she thought like that's what she had to affirm. And, and I said, the more you affirm that, the weaker you're going to feel because every time you say it, your subconscious is going to say, no, no, that's not true. I said, we've got to develop for you an affirmation that you can actually give yourself to. And so we developed, we worked out an affirmation that was like, every day I will, um, I will do my very best to deal with whatever comes to me. And that she could say, there was no qualm about saying that. And she just would deal on a daily basis with whatever came. It would try to calm her fears about the future and the what-ifs. And I mean, we phrased it out a little more carefully. But she could com completely stand with that, and that actually gave her strength. And so sometimes on the spiritual path, we have to have the courage to be really honest about where we are and then move appropriately to the next level of awareness. Now, why did I say that? Oh, because of my base metal can the key be filed. And it's just a very simple truth. Whatever we are is the substance that can be spiritualized. And, and self-acceptance, which is such a perfectly obvious statement, is really fundamental to the spiritual path. Not self-complacency, but just acceptance. This is my karma to this point. You know, it makes no difference what your karma is at this point. It only makes a difference what you do from this point. And in a very real sense, the moving finger writes and then moves on. I mean, so what? So what if you have created such a condition for yourself that you are just the worst? I remember one dear fellow said, I may be the worst of Master's children, but I'm still one of his children. 
you know, and you may be the absolute bottom of the heap. It doesn't make any difference. That's who you are. All that matters is what your intention is from this point. It makes no difference. And so don't think you can skip by just ignoring what is. And this I know, whether the one true light kindled to love or wrath consume me quite, one glimpse of it within the tavern caught better than in the temple lost outright. It's a very interesting point here. Swamiji has talked about this before, that essentially there's, that the devotees can go one of two directions. And he spoke of this uh, essentially saying that your soul more or less makes a choice. And, and, and one way is, is in a service-oriented way, that the more spiritually inclined you get, the more you get involved with expanding your ego to infinity, in essence, by embracing everyone. And the other is the path of, of a, 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 a real-world renouncing renunciate. Um, the Swami Ramya that Swami talks about, Yogi Ramya that Swami talks about, who was a God-realized master who just lived quietly in this village and just really was involved with almost no one, but his consciousness was infinite, and the way he served the world was by his vibrations. But he just felt no inspiration whatsoever to be involved in any way. And then you have Master, who will promise us to return again and again a trillion times if necessary, as long as one stray brother is left behind. And this is just love kindles in him so much compassion that he just, the Bodhisattva, he just comes again and again to help us or the ones that the more they get into the infinite, the more it's just a dream and they just leave. Swami talks about the yogis who grow their hair long or the yogis who shave their head. Sort of when you grow your hair long, the tentacles out in all directions are involving you in the picking up the energy of the world and the shaved head is the one who stands back from it all. It's just, it's just different ways of looking at it. And we, we may have different moods and different incarnations as we balance things out and different days and different astrological cycles when we're inclined in certain ways. But there also will be a fundamental temperament that the more... Swamiji himself said he's always been torn between a strong inclination to be a hermit and an absolutely irresistible desire to share with everything whatever he discovers. (laughs) You know, he just can hardly stand it because he wants to run out and tell everybody about it. And so we sort of watch those desires, those different aspects play out in our heart and realize that they are really different threads. And and Omar Khayyam writes that he doesn't really care which way it goes as long as he has the realization. O thou who didst with pitfall and with gin beset the road I was to wander in, thou wilt not with predestination round enmesh me and impute my fall to sin. This is, Master speaks of the thou and this is the ego. And the ego tries to ensnare us with false reasoning and say that somebody else is making it happen, that it's Satan who's doing it, or destiny, instead of really accepting responsibility for itself. We've talked about this a little bit already. It's a very interesting verse that way. We just have a couple of more minutes. We'll just... Pardon me? The question mark. He's asking... Um, oh thou who didst with pitfall he's just it's sort of a question mark is this what you're going to do to me now are you going to try to persuade me that it wasn't the ego's own doing but that somehow actually I'm not responsible that's what he's saying right but this time 
Yes, thou in this case is the deluded pseudo-soul or ego. Yeah, you can never trust that you know what the words mean. So you have to always check it out very carefully. And now also thou is negative in the next one too. O thou who man of baser earth didst make, and who with Eden didst devise the snake, for all the sin wherewith the face of man is blackened, man's forgiveness give and take. This is a little bit complicated. God made it difficult for us to escape. God himself made the satanic force. And God demands that we be strong. He created a, a, a challenge for us. He didn't just create a soft path. There's a, a, this, this extraordinarily unanswerable question as to why creation is the way it is. But all the masters just speak of it, that there is this impelling force that tries to take us away from the light and there is this tremendous necessity for us to garner all the strength of the infinite in order to pull ourselves back. And this is simply the way it is. But God uh, has great sympathy with us in our struggles. And Swami writes a very um, interesting editorial comment about what, what Satan is. He describes it as the outward pulling energy that... Uh, pushes us to feel separated from God. And we all experience it, and it feels like a conscious force, and Master says it is. I mean, just really, you're, you're there, and these, these, this vibration comes into your consciousness that persuades you that everything is divine and loved by God except you. <laughs> everything will be saved except you. And everything can be overcome except this. It's just, it's just so real, and it just has so much power over us. We just, after a time, we just have to really understand that it doesn't make any difference about the details of those thoughts. We just have to reject them. Just as simple as that. Yes. Pardon me? Yes. They're, satanic. They're the satanic force. It, any, anything that persuades you. So Master put it very simply. He said, whenever you get into a dark mood, Satan has a hold of you. You know, whenever you get into a dark mood, Master wouldn't allow people around him, they say, when they were moody. You know, just ordinary, oh, and, and all the things that we feel so justified in. Oh, well, the reason I feel moody is because I'm contemplating all the things I've done wrong, and, you know, I feel so bad about them. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's what Master said. That kind of self-pity and self-punishment uh, uh, and all of that, that's not spiritual. And it's satanic reasoning. Oh, but I'm justified in feeling bad because look how bad I am. No, Satan has a hold of you. And just think of it. When you're out of it and you're cheerful and you're giving and you're happy, you think, why would I ever do that? When you're in it, it feels so necessary. You know? But it isn't. I mean, you have to be balanced. You have to be real. But don't be fooled. I remember not too long ago, I was just having a very difficult moment, and I started just going on and on about how awful things were and how I was the worst of them. And just right in the middle, I said, oh, I don't even believe this. <laughs> I mean, just all of a sudden, I just heard myself. I thought, this is just too stupid. Why am I just going on like this? I may feel bad, but I certainly don't need to exaggerate it with this sense of melodrama. You know, you're going to feel better soon. Why not speed up the process? And that's what we just need to come to, is just don't let him persuade you. Just don't let him persuade you. Recognize what the real battle is. The battle isn't for me 
to deal with this dark aspect of myself, the battle is to stop thinking of yourself as a dark aspect and just say, sure, but it's a wave on the ocean. Magic shadow show, who cares? Break the tie of ego, disidentify. Yes, it's true, you may have screwed up in such a colossal way that it's going to take you incarnations to live through it. I mean, there it is, the moving finger writes, but why suffer it unnecessarily over that? What's done is done. Disidentify with it. I mean, you see, okay, so it's a bad thing, but you're not going to help it by gripping it with the ego. The only hope you have at that point is to disidentify with it to some extent. Just observe it calmly and don't define yourself by it. What if you die at this moment? Do you want to die with that thought in your mind? You always have to be prepared for your heart to stop, for you to have a stroke or something. <laughs> I'm joking, but only halfway. When you're in that, do you think, do I want this to be my last thought? No. Then why have it at all? Of course, I'm being very gyanic, meaning I'm just talking about the power of the mind to influence your reality. It doesn't always work. Sometimes you have to be devotional or serviceful or you have to use other techniques also. But gyan is very helpful, especially for Westerners, especially Westerners who live in Palo Alto. We're all a lot like this, you know. Right thoughts help. Okay. I think I'll skip that one. Let's see if what 60 is. I like this one. I'm just going to read 60 and then we'll end. And strange to tell among the earthen lot, some could articulate while others not. And suddenly one more impatient cried, Who is the potter, pray? And who the pot? <laughs> and this is just a comment about the extraordinary nature of creation and how different people are. And let it be an incentive to us to move toward the light and become those who are conscious and not be lost among the un unconscious multitude and let our incarnations just fritter away. Okay, that's it for tonight. One more night of the Rubaiyat. We get to go in some of, some of those exquisite end ones. 60 to the end of the book. 61 to the end of the book. I'm really glad we've done this book. It's really given us, at least me, I hope some of you, a real connection to it I never had before. Okay. Don't forget to take a page of the...